Welcome to Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. You've tuned in to hear compelling conversations on hot topics and trends with law enforcement professionals and personalities from across Canada. This episode is brought to you by Patriot One Technologies, whose mission is to deliver innovative threat detection and counterterrorism solutions for safer communities. Patriot One's PatScan multi-sensor covert threat detection platform identifies and reports weapons and threats wherever required, from car park to building approach, from employee and public entryways to inside facilities. Learn more at PatriotOneTech.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Blue Line, the podcast. I'm your host, Renee Francoeur, the editor of Blue Line magazine. Thank you for tuning in. We're changing gears uh, with this episode as we usher in the new year. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. We're not a true crime podcast by any means, but this just might be the closest we ever come. So prepare yourselves for some stories from the underworld. Uh, No, I'm not talking about, you know, Hades and Departed Souls. A bad joke, I know, I know. Um, But I'm saying we're about to get into the intricacy of organized crime here in Canada. To take us there, we're joined by organized crime specialist Stephen Matalski, a writer, retired police intelligence sergeant, and he's currently a criminology professor at Mohawk College, where he's been the chair of the Program Advisory Committee for all justice-related programs since 2014. He has covered true crime stories for various newspapers and writes the Cold Case Chronicles column for Niagara this week. He's also contributed some fascinating, well-researched articles on gun violence, confidential human sources, and the lone wolf terrorist ideology for Blue Line. And if you're thinking his name sounds familiar and you've seen it somewhere more recently, it's probably because he's the contributor behind our January 2020 cover story on gambling rackets and the escalating violence here in the greater Toronto region. Check it out because to quote Steve, these aren't friends in someone's garage playing poker. This is serious stuff with tentacles extending far, far beyond Toronto. I'm excited to talk more about it today. Steve, thanks for having us here on uh, Mohawk College campus. Thank you so much for coming down to Hamilton today. Really appreciate it. You bet. It's great to be here. So let's uh, let's start right at the beginning. Uh, tell me, how does one become an organized crime specialist? Well, I grew up, my dad was with the Toronto Police in the 60s and 70s. So I grew up as a kid going to a lot of the police games and meeting some of my dad's friends that were on the job in intel and investigative units. And it really sort of led to a fascination with true and organized crime. And even before as a teenager, I was reading several books in the genre and becoming very fascinated with it to the point where it really motivated me to continue my education post-secondary and end up doing my master's in criminology because I'm very fascinated with the whole topic of crime and why people commit crimes, um, which led me to a police career uh, just over 20 years and uh, as a sergeant in Intel where I finished up and working organized crime, um, you know, and undercover work and developing confidential human sources and working traditional organized crime and some of the other food slash criminal groups. Uh, and now it's interesting because I'm, I'm kind of on the other side of the fence. Now I'm, I'm, I'm teaching about it. I'm writing about it. And it's uh, incredibly refreshing and, and trying to get students motivated in that whole topic of, you know, crime and deviance and what propels people to become violent in society. 
Wow. What a great experience to, uh, to draw on now as a professor. So is there one particular case that you always go back to? You know, there's so many cases, especially in the world of, of policing and intelligence information, uh, particularly organized crime. The one thing that was um, bestowed upon me when I started was you're only as good as your name is on a report. That's how other people get to know you know, who you are is based on the quality of your written work and, you know, eventually spoken work. And I remember in the 90s, uh, did a traffic stop with a full patch member of a biker gang driving a high-end vehicle belonging to a high-ranking traditional organized crime member. And it was really fascinating to me just that was kind of sort of the turning point for me because, you know, being able to put vehicles and locations, people with people, making those connections, connecting those dots, especially in the interior world, uh, was really fascinating to me. And then, you know, putting in a nice detailed report about everything you've you've come across, trying to talk to the person, planting the seed even, you know, potentially down the line for, for them to become a confidential source as well. You know, you got to take that opportunity. It was an interesting time in Southern Ontario to be policing with, especially with the organized crime world with uh, Johnny Papalia getting killed in 97 and, and then his underboss, Carmine Barilero, and, you know, the whole Musitano conspiracy uh, to commit murder and they hired, you know, Ken Murdoch, the hitman. So that was really kind of the turning point for me was, you know, not only knowing who all the players were in the zoo, but, you know, proactively working it whenever you had a moment to to, to go out and, and, you know, checking addresses and vehicles. So that was really fascinating to me. You know, it must have also been a little bit surreal for, you know, the, the 12-year-old child in you that was reading these books and now uh, doing the work. Well, it's definitely an advantage for me because it, you know, knowing who everybody was, and I remember d- developing one confidential human source in that world, and it was, you really gain a lot of street credibility with these guys, and even women are sources as well, too, if you come prepared. It's like doing any kind of interview, any investigation, you have to do your homework. So when you're fully prepared, it not only, you know, is a seamless segue to developing that rapport with somebody, but you really do get a lot of street credibility when you know who and what they are talking about as well. Street cred, I love it. Okay. What about cold cases? I know the that's a passion of yours as well. Is there one particular one that you always go back to? It's really hard to pick one, but one that does stand out that I wrote about in Niagara this week is uh, approaching the 21-year anniversary of this being a cold case. James Horvath in Welland, Ontario. January of 1999, he came home and unfortunately, tragically, he interrupted a break and enter in his home and he paid the ultimate price, uh, sadly, with his life. And it just really sort of resonates, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, somebody who's worked hard their whole life, they've earned their retirement and then to have their life callously and instantaneously taken out. And I know for a fact that's why I'm I'm very motivated to write about these cold cases because it's about, you know, tweaking, getting the information back out about the case. Somebody out there knows information, small or large, it doesn't matter. There's crime stoppers. You don't necessarily have to walk into a police station and identify yourself. You can call anonymously with tips or information. So, you know, a lot of these cases, hopefully all of them, it doesn't matter who they are, they need to be brought to justice. Right. And I I appreciate, you know, just even uh, you taking the time to get the news back out there because uh, it can take 
that one little push, right? Five years later and someone has a second thought or a, a, a memory that uh, um, uh, surfaces that they didn't maybe think was important before. So you're right. We just we have to keep, uh, I guess, uh, drumming, drumming those news stories home. Yeah, absolutely. So things have been happening in the news. I know um, Antonio Fiorda, a veteran mobster, was shot and killed outside of an Etobicoke restaurant this past November. Um, in other news, 17 organized crime-linked murders happened in the greater Montreal area in 2019. I recently read a headline about uh, Amazon courier bags from Canada that were being used for shipping drugs into India, and that international mafia was involved in that. So... That brings us to our January cover story, written by the one and only yourself, and uh, the article that you submitted there for gambling and the underworld violence. So maybe for those listeners who haven't flipped through our latest edition yet, uh, give us a brief overview of what you're really trying to communicate uh, to the law enforcement audience in this article. Yeah, absolutely. When you look at the different types of criminal groups, the different genres, traditional organized crime, uh, Eastern European organized crime with Russian Albanian crime, Asian organized crime, you have outlaw motorcycle gangs, street gangs, the one common denominator with all these groups, they are all fluent in one and the same language. And that universal language that they're fluent in is cash. And long gone are the days where these groups uh, typically would uh, alienate themselves from other groups, long gone. They will work together if they can make money together. And gambling in the underworld provides tons of it. Uh, when you look at the number two money makers, drug importation slash trafficking and gambling, gambling has a less stigmatic perception to it. Uh, you know, we have Ontario run, you know, gambling casinos and um, a lot of people, not everybody, but, you know, there might be this stigma that, you know, gambling is a victimless crime. And in the underworld, it's not. It leads to so many other tertiary, violent, criminal offenses. Uh, The majority um, of underworld violence, especially what we're seeing right now in the GTA, the Golden Horseshoe, uh, between 2016 and 2017, there were dozens of uh, murders, tent murders, arsons, cafe bombings, drive-by shootings. And the one common denominator is the gaming racket. So I really took a look at that and spoke with uh, Inspector Carl Matnan. You know, York Regional Police, they, they stood up and, and recognized that this was becoming an epidemic situation, and they formed a traditional organized crime task force. And Carl Matnan, as the inspector, was, was commanding that. So I had a really good interview with Carl. So based on the, the violence that was occurring in the greater Toronto area in the Golden Horseshoe, York Regional Police uh, started Project Syndicato. And it was a parallel investigation with the Italian authorities in Italy. And syndicato uh, means union in Italian. And they focused on the Andragata Calabrian faction of traditional organized crime here in the greater Toronto area and outwards into the Golden Horseshoe. And uh, they they worked on it simultaneously with investigators uh, into the Soderno group uh, in Italy because the connectivity with Italy to the greater Toronto area is, is extremely strong, especially with the Andragada uh, wow. cells of traditional organized crime. So still very strong right now. Still very strong. And, you know, a lot of people mistake, you know, when things are quiet that things have died down. Um, that is just, you know, the complete opposite. Because at the end of the day, they want to keep a low profile. Um, so the, the less that they're in the news, the better. But I got an interesting quote from Carl Matten, and uh, when, when I did the interview with him, 
is with the amount of money these groups are bringing in, that creates a power struggle within the underworld. So everyone wants a piece of it. And that was in specific context with gambling. So we're, we're seeing uh, a lot of violence in Montreal, Quebec. We're seeing a lot of violence in Toronto. We're seeing violence in Hamilton all the way out to the Golden Horseshoe. And the majority of that is due to this power struggle, this vacuum, um, you know, to have to do with, with gaming rackets and the amount of money that gambling generates for organized crime. Wow. And, you know, it makes me think of uh, the 1950s and Galveston and casinos, and you don't really connect it to this is happening in the present day. This is a real issue for law enforcement in the present day. Not only that, there's also the online component now to gambling, which um, I get, would you say that's a high concern for law enforcement uh, as well, that online component with it? Yeah, the the onslaught of technology over the years has, is definitely something that has suited organized crime, especially in the area of online gambling. If you look at a case called Project O River, uh, it involved a platinum sports book, which was a online uh, betting platform that was initially based in Costa Rica uh, to avoid you know, law enforcement uh, catching on. And it was a very online lucrative uh, gambling racket run by traditional organized crime, the mafia in Toronto with the Hells Angels. And uh, just to give you an idea, uh, when I was a sergeant in intelligence, we assisted the RCMP uh, towards the tail end with Project O River uh, and the takedowns. And without giving any specific information, I can tell you that the the home that we assisted with and the search incident to the warrant being executed, uh, this individual that was living there was not a member of traditional organized crime. They were not an outlaw biker, uh, nor you know a striker, hang around, none of that. They were the money guy, kind of the conduit between you know, the bikers and, and the mafia. And the search incident uh, divulged or revealed 900000 in cash in a few shoe boxes in the bedroom. And at the end of the day, what we were able to discern was that 900000 which is an extreme amount of money to most people, was, you know, if I can put it in everyday terms, it's like when you go through the Tim Hortons drive through and you're rummaging through your change jar for a toonie or a loonie to pay for a coffee. Nine hundred grand, especially with Platinum Sportsbook, was synonymous to, you know, miscellaneous money sitting around in your chain. That's how much money was being generated. And when you think about it, that's one racket online. There could be a million other, you know, whether it's poker houses, other online gaming, loan sharking. You know, this is the amount of money just on the offshoots of, of gambling is endless. And the money is even more endless. And cash is king to everybody in that world at the end of the day. Cash speaks volumes. And the, the only tragic part to this is, you know, when there's that amount of money being made, violence isn't too far behind because right. other people, they want a piece of it. They don't just want a piece of it. They want to run it. They want to control it. And, power. Yeah. And it's, you know, in the corporate world, there's takeovers. But unfortunately, in the underworld, a corporate takeover in the mob involves violence and murder. Right. You know, you've touched on it already, but um, tell us a little bit more about how gambling specifically uh, escalates and translates other crimes and violence. Yeah, absolutely. If you, I also interviewed Lenny Eisner. He's a retired OPP detective sergeant and biker expert. And he was able to give a little bit of insight into the history of traditional organized crime and, and the bikers, specifically the Hells Angels. And we, we had a, an interesting conversation, and, and from my experience too, things like poker houses, total hypothetical situation, uh, but very realistic in, in the underworld. These houses uh, house 
a number of different poker games in one house. Let's use the number five. Five different poker games with five professional dealers. No one can just walk in off the street. These are games you need to be vouched for. You need to know somebody in those circles to be vouched for to get into these games. They're very secretive. A lot of these people that are gambling are regular citizens too. They can't go to the bank for a loan. Their credit cards might be maxed out. So where the violence comes in is something as simple as borrowing $5,000 at one of these games. The amount of interest, uh, they call it vigorish or the vig. Uh, say it's every two weeks they have to pay you know, 10 points on a loan. A lot of times they're not even touching the interest of the loan. And if they can't make the biweekly interest payments, you know, first time out could be a warning. Second time out could involve bodily harm. And, you know, we've seen innocent people over the years who have been, you know, murdered just due to a gambling debt owed to the mob. And on the flip side, you know, sometimes if these people are in a desperate situation to pay this money back due to being threatened, you know, this could lead to other tertiary crimes like committing a fraud or thefts from the, the actual potential victims themselves. Wow. So when you look at how things can mushroom, you know, take, for example, uh, Salvatore Alamo uh, was a janitor at Stalco in the early 1980s and Ken Murdoch uh, was sent to you know deliver a message to him regarding a gambling debt that was owed the Moose Towns. So a regular citizen that just you know got involved with boring money and it all had to do with gambling. Wow and and the impacts on the community the families the the wider um ripple effects of something like this like we've seen in your earlier article with the Louise Russo yeah, very uh, incredible woman when I interviewed Louise. Um, but again, another set of tragic circumstances where, you know, this was the offshoot of Platinum Sportsbook, where Louise had gone into California Sandwiches. Her, her children were waiting in the car, and unbeknownst to her, there was a mobster in front in front of her in line or in close proximity that owed a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, he was in the underworld as well. He wasn't immune to not paying money back. Uh, there was a vehicle outside that went by with some Hells Angels members and, uh, you know, TOC, traditional organized crime members. And, you know, sadly and tragically, the intended victim was was not struck, but Louise, you know, was paralyzed. And what's what's interesting out of that is the, the negative ripple effects because it was such a high-profile botched hit. Um, you know, the violence that actually continued after that. Peter Scarcella, there was an attempt on his life when he was incarcerated. There's been a couple uh, attempt homicides at Sherway Gardens on a couple of the bikers that were involved in that hit. So this all comes back to a gambling debt, you know, and then sadly the violence that we're seeing, the trend that is very alarming, it's very scary. It's different. You know, you don't want to see anybody get hurt. Uh, but historically it's kind of, it reminds me of the biker wars in Quebec when, when the young boy was uh, tragically killed by the Jeep bomb that went off. This is very reminiscent here where innocent people are, in the wrong place at the wrong time, tragically, but the sloppiness that's going on, innocent people are getting victimized and killed in this territorial right. turf war. Right, and it goes back to how you ended your article. You know, it, gambling is not a victimless crime. It's not. It's not simple. It's not dry and cut. It's not uh, uh, without impact in a negative way. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I wanted to really do the article, just to get out uh, to to everybody, the readership, that... It's, it's not as cut and dry as just, you know, these, as Carl said, these aren't just regular guys playing poker in a garage. 
this leads to you know a lot of other violence that we're seeing and that's how syndicato was formed yeah, speaking of Syndicato, actually, that 18-month mafia investigation um, with YRP, but as well as the Italian authorities, what for you was, was maybe the most interesting finding uh, from that investigation? There were a couple things. The, the one thing I found really fascinating was something Carl said initially is that the math is not afraid. And it, that really was profound because um, a lot of people have said to me over the years, you know, do the police do investigators... Uh, work as hard to solve, you know, crimes involving murders in the underworld. And I said, absolutely, probably even equally, if not more so, because of the lack of cooperation. When, you know, whenever there's a murder in the underworld, you're not seeing a long lineup of people at the police station ready to be a cooperating witness. And so all the men and women that work in these projects, you you don't see the results of these typically for years because intel work never makes page one. You might hear about it when it's completely finished, the big press conference, the takedowns. But what I really liked was how they worked. It wasn't a joint venture with the Italian authorities because they have different laws, they have different policies and procedures, but it was an intelligence gathering and joint sharing operation. So York would pass information to the Italian authorities and vice versa, and they would use and work the information that would benefit them under their own laws within their own countries, but working towards the same Indragata cells. So this investigation was really about forensic accounting and tracking the money because a lot of these guys will still go to jail. They'll uphold the code of a murder. They'll do a few years in jail. But where it really stings is when their money is tracked. Their assets are are forfeited. The houses, the cars, the jewelry, you know, finding their money that's been washed offshore or even the money that they're washing through casinos and seizing that money. So the one thing that was really stuck out to me was that these these documents don't recant. The numbers don't lie. They are enduring. They're not going to be a hostile witness in court. They're not going to be, um, you know, recant information. The numbers are there. The numbers speak for themselves. So I thought that was really profound in, mm-hmm. in, in that investigative, I think, more investigations. Uh, I know when I was in intelligence, you know, bringing on the asset forfeiture investigators from day one is such an invaluable tool because that's where it stings. Wow. And, and then that joint partnership uh, comes into play again. Of We can't do this on our own. We need everybody here. Yeah, definitely. And that, so it comes back to that the math doesn't lie. So the focusing, math doesn't lie. Focusing on the numbers. You know, it's a very painstaking process, but, you know, investigators do, you know, spend their due diligence and time tracking that money. And when it comes time to court, you know, that information is pretty solid. Wonderful advice. All right. So um, that project also uh, netted more than $35 million in assets and arrested 27 individuals, just to continue with our numbers theme here. Um, you know, but what do you think law enforcement will see from the underworld next here in the GTA? Because we, we talked about that scary power struggle that's happening right now. So your opinion on what's next? Well, if you were to look at the underworld situation right now, if it was in it cataloged in the book, the next chapters are literally blank. You know, from my professional experience as as an officer, uh, now as a writer and, and professor, looking at the current state of affairs in Quebec and in Ontario, I've never seen the underworld so upside down in terms of the geographic voids for dominance and power. Um, you know, I, I, I'll never forget the day we found out uh, in our intelligence uh, circles when when Vito Rizzuto died of cancer, even before it hit the news. 
and we were incredibly shocked. And there's no doubt in my mind that uh, just a very small inner circle of his family, a crime family and blood family, uh, knew about his condition. Uh, other factions of organized crime were equally as shocked. But we're seeing the ripple effects of, you know, the demise of the Rizzuto family with the violence in Montreal. And when you look at uh, Toronto, especially the city of Hamilton, you know, with Pat Musitano, the attempt on his life in the summer, uh, his brother was murdered the year before. Um, we're seeing the Violi brothers were incarcerated due to, you know, the good work that was done on uh, Project O'Tremens and our CMP project. And, you know, the Papalia family were never really regained any type of power after Johnny, Johnny Pops was murdered in 97. So everything is really upside down right now. And, and when there is no one that is identifiable at the top of the hierarchy in the underworld, and especially in a hot geographic zone like Hamilton, Toronto, Montreal, that opens the door and floodgates for you know, other people coming in to try to make their power move. And unfortunately, with power moves comes violence. And tragically, that's what you know we've been seeing over the last couple of years in, in the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe. So I guess we're poised, waiting to see what those uh, next pages uh, will say. Yeah, you don't want to see anybody you know ever get hurt. I just the, the latest trend in southern Ontario has involved uh, a lot of innocent victimization. Um, so... It, it's really anyone's guess what, what's going to happen next. But sadly, I think one of the guarantees is we're going to continue to see a violence uh, eruption in the underworld, given this lack of uh, leadership in these areas. All right. So it's not over yet, and uh, there's still lots of work to do, we can say. Uh, so we just talked about a success with the, the numbers that were netted and the arrests that uh, happened. But, you know, what do you think law enforcement, uh, what do you think we in law enforcement could do a better job at in this realm of illegal betting and, and whatnot? Is there any advice? Well, when you look at the poker houses, um, you know, things like common betting offenses, common betting gaming houses, they are, you know, making just incredible amounts of money a night. And if, if you have 10 or 15 of those on the go and each house is making 20000 that's just another segment of a racket. Because uh, as Len Eisner said, history has shown that the Hells Angels and traditional organized crime are working together in the illegal gaming industry. And that's really where it's at is, you know, trying to infiltrate and, um, you know, penetrate some of these gambling rackets. Like even trying to get an undercover operator in a gaming house is extremely difficult because you need to be vouched. You need to be connected to somebody, somebody that, you know, has known you for years and years and years and, and can wholeheartedly say that, you know, they will vouch for that person. When you look at the laws on the backside too, you know, investigating something as simple as a gaming house um, could take months. The amount of people that are involved in, from an investigative perspective, the human resources, the money that goes into investigating it when at the end of the day, in a lot of these cases, the reduced to summary offenses and sometimes even fines you know and when these groups are making that amount of money paying a paltry fine at the end of the day is part of doing business so at the end of the day i really firmly believe the power of human source information um, is really you know something that's really never going to go away everybody has everybody has a story to tell and i i think if every service really focused on even having a human source development unit even if it's just two officers that are good at what they do, um, generating information. Part six investigations, you know, wiretaps, these huge investigative ventures cost 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Um, you can't replace old-fashioned information. That at least opens a lot of other potential doors and investigative avenues. There are things the robots cannot do. <laughs> so let's circle back to present day uh, and your role here at Mohawk College as a professor. What is the most important thing you're teaching your students um, about organized crime? And, and maybe what is the one thing that you hope they take away uh, at the end of the year? Yeah, the course is a psychosocial criminology course. And Organized crime does play a small factor in it. It is a module, but there is a greater picture that we want to give the students a full understanding of the scope of criminology. Um, examines criminality as a as a genre with you know diverse psychological, sociological factors within that discipline of criminology. And myself and a colleague, Dr. Kimberly Costello, developed that course about a year ago. It looks at other things as well, you know, the typologies of serial killers, mass killers, you know, the shooting sprees, hate crimes, different ideologies. Uh, even, we even look at um, something, you know, near and dear to my heart is victimology, right? Like proactive ways of not becoming victimized and just that whole encompassed together. Um, tragically, there, there's no shortage of news items to, to be used as, as case studies. Um, but what is the root caus- causality of violent offending? That's really what the course looks at, getting into the mind of the offender, the psychology of it, the, you know, what propels and motivates these people, what, uh, you know, even different disorders that uh, may or may not lead to criminality. So organized crime is definitely a, a big module in that, but it's a small piece of the overall, you know, criminology whole uh, unto itself. Well, we wish you and your students the best at the end of uh, this semester coming up. And if you've caught any of our previous episodes, which I think you have, uh, you'll know we end each one with two fun questions. So I hope you are ready for this. What is something your colleagues might not know about you? Well, interesting question. Um, Years and years ago, I wrote and performed stand-up comedy for about 10 years plus. And I know you wouldn't know it now, but I'm completely unfunny. But I have been told... I have a face for radio, so I think that was a compliment. <laughs> Something new I learned about you. Look at that. There you go. What about uh, one thing you, as an organized crime specialist and, and former law enforcement officer at that, um, couldn't live without? I, li- I still totally enjoy reading reading the stories. You know, you can only uh, hear so much and, and write about so much out there. So I really rely on, you know, some of the great articles, whether newspapers, magazines, uh, books. Uh, a lot of great movies are being adapted from books that uh, have been coming out. You know, Charles Brandt's book, uh, Heard You Paint Houses. Right. Better known the, Irishman. the Irishman. Yeah. yeah. You know, just that the the topics in, the, in that genre are really endless. So I, I'm always very interested to see what other people have to say as well. Nice. You're a story guy. The passion is in the stories. Yeah, I really love the stories because everybody has one to tell. And yeah. uh, in that genre, there's no lack of of interest in, you know, from other people wanting to know about what's happening. Fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us here today and bringing your view on the underworld to Blue Lines listeners. Uh, I'm looking forward to your next article. Is there any any hints on what you plan to cover next? Yeah, I'm really, I want to take a look at organized criminality and organized crime and the hierarchical structure from an institutional perspective. You know, over the years, uh, you have all these different groups, you know, that are in jail and incarcerated. And it's funny, there was a quote in The Irishman, they referred to jail as going to school. And I, I really like that because it is it is so true. The word correction, don't get me wrong, there are a lot of, 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 of inmates that, you know, their behavior is corrected. There's a lot of, 
means and, and therapies to, to, ha- to get them back on track. But in, in the underworld, these guys are going to jail to make a connection, not correction. The connectivity, the schemes, the plots that have been made inside in jail, um, and no doubt in the underworld, have uh, you know originated from from that setting. When you look at organized crime, especially traditional organized crime, and the relationship with street gangs as you know hired contract shooters, uh, a lot of that is originated from inside. So I really want to take an in depth look at you know what's that life like on the inside when they go to jail. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, we will be waiting anxiously for that. Uh, Steve, thanks again for joining us uh, here at Blue Line, the podcast, and welcoming us on Mohawk College campus. All the best with the next uh, adventure. Thanks so much for coming out. had a really good time. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Blue Line, the podcast. Thank you to everyone listening, especially those out protecting our communities. Stay safe. This episode is brought to you by Patriot One Technologies, whose mission is to deliver innovative threat detection and counterterrorism solutions for safer communities. Patriot One's PatScan multi-sensor covert threat detection platform identifies and reports weapons and threats wherever required, from car park to building approach, from employee and public entryways to inside facilities. Learn more at PatriotOneTech.com. Thank you for joining Blue Line, the podcast hosted by Blue Line, Canada's only independent national magazine for law enforcement. 